Salabona, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the Wines of South Africa podcast. I'm U.S. Marketing Manager Jim Clark. In each episode, we explore some aspect of South African wine. We talk with winemakers, winery owners, and other members of South Africa's vibrant wine industry, and we also give a sommelier a chance to share their impression of the wines. Today, we're going to look at a newer wine-growing region, Elgin. On the map, it's right next door to Stellenbosch, but in fact, it's quite different, as we'll see. Elgin's producers range from local, well-established farmers who grew up in the area to outsiders who came from across South Africa in search of a cool climate area. Let's see what draw a few of them, not just to Elgin, but to the world of winemaking as well. Hi, I'm Paul Kluver from Paul Kluver Winery in the Elgin Appalachian in South Africa, Cape Town. And I run a fourth generation family business. And one of our focus areas is producing wines from this beautiful area in the Cape. The Kluver family has been farming in the Elgin area since 1896. So this year would be 125 years. My great-grandfather originally bought the farm for summer grazing for his sheep. And later on, my grandmother, post-Second World War, he actually started developing the farm and planting the city of fruit. And today, Elgin is known as the largest apple-growing region in South Africa. It's like the Washington State, if you can think of Washington State producing the most apples in America. Elgin is very similar to that. It's the largest apple-growing region in South Africa. We've been doing that since 1948. We still grow a fair amount of apples on the estate. But in the 1980s, when Marlboro, New Zealand, Oregon, the United States became famous for producing cool climate grapes, the question was asked, where in South Africa can we do the same thing? Where would be potentially our coolest wine-growing region? Needless to say, being an apple-growing region, obviously much cooler than your traditional wine-growing regions. Elgin was identified, and my father, together with Niederberg, pioneered the first commercial plantings. That was in the mid-80s, and then in the 90s, we started with our own winery. Hi, I'm Catherine Marshall, and it's a real joy to connect with everybody in the United States. And I am a small producer of premium wines based in Cool Climate Elgin. And I've chosen Cool Climate Elgin for the purpose of producing fine wines, and you need these cold climates in order to make that happen. I've been working in various sites all over the Western Cape, from the West Coast all the way to the Swatland area, Stellenbosch, Paul, you name it. And I've also traveled overseas for a while. So I've got a sense of where the varieties are best suited in terms of how we position those varieties in South Africa. Because I think it is extremely important that one chooses the varieties that one likes and then chooses the geography which means the climate, the soils, the sites, all in that group. For me, it's no good making a Pinot Noir that is grown in the Swatland, for instance. It just wouldn't work. I wouldn't get that fresh, bright, clean character of flavor and structure that I'm looking for. So it's been quite a journey to get to that point of understanding where the best sites are for the particular varieties that I work with. And in 2004, when I was making wine in Stellenbosch, I was really scrounging around looking for the best sites of Pinot particularly and then happened to end up in Elgin and saw the merits of the soils and the the fact that it's elevated, it's completely surrounded by mountains. So it sets itself apart from the rest of the Western Cape in terms of where fruit is grown and how it is established and, and how best it interfaces with all of that. Kluver referred themselves as the pioneers, which is probably true. But prior to that, there were some experimental vineyards planted at Oak Valley. 
But the whole wine industry was regulated by the KWB up until 1995. In fact, most wines in South Africa were planted in the warm to hot wine growing regions. You talk about this old vine series and Swatland and those areas. There were huge amounts of vineyards planted there. Those grapes were supplied to the KWB, and they decided who and where they could plant. And, of course, they didn't want grapes to be planted in cool climates. Because firstly, you don't get the, the volume, and secondly, you don't get the sugar. The Kluvers were certainly the first. My name's Andrew Gunn. I'm the proprietor or owner I owner. Actually, I'm an engineer by training. I started my career as a businessman in Johannesburg. My last business was a medical suture company. And I sold it, and I felt I was young enough to start a new career. So I was actually sitting in a coffee shop in Johannesburg, and I found an advertisement for a farm in Francia. I found that estate agent and came down to look at the farm. And I must say, fortunately, it was in February because it was really hot. The temperature was 40 degrees. And I thought, no, this is not the sort of place that I'd like to live because I prefer a cooler climate. So I said to the agent, have you got other farms? He said, plenty. And this, in fact, wasn't a wine farm. It was a lime farm. So the whole idea was I was exploring a farm rather than a wine farm. Anyway, after about three months exploring farms all over the Cape, I eventually he said, I think I know what you're looking for. And we came down to Elgin, and he introduced me to this farm, which is situated on the southerly boundary of the Elgin Valley. And this farm sits right on the southerly boundary. It's at 450 meters above sea level. At the time, it was planted to apples, and I thought I was going to make a reasonable living as an apple farm. But very quickly, I realized that the apples were the wrong varieties. There was a big move to the bicolored apples, and the apple trees were quite old. And I lent on my engineering training, put temperature loggers on the farm, compared my climate to the great growing regions of the world, particularly France. And I compared my climate with the help of a friend of my uncle, who's a geomorphologist. And we found that we had a, a climate somewhere between Sanse and Burgundy. This was met with quite a lot of skepticism by the professor of viticulture at Stellenbosch. But after I persuaded him and showed him my rationale, he got really excited about it. And he said, I'd like to help you plan and plant this farm, which we did. And in practice, we found that we actually are the coolest vineyard site in the country. We're probably more towards Sancerre, a little bit warmer. But we have the advantage that we have a slightly warmer spring and a warmer autumn. So we focused largely on Sauvignon, Chardonnay and Pinot, which are obviously cool climate grapes, and have, have been very successful in that regard. When we originally bought the farm, it was called Schielbeck's Flay, which is a bit of a tongue twister. And our surname Gunn comes from the Norwegian Gunnar, and we trace our ancestry back to the Vikings that landed in Scotland in the 900s. And you'll notice when you have a look at our labels, We've got a Viking ship, which is part of our family crest. And our owner is an island off the west coast of Scotland where these Vikings were very active. Elgin is, in fact, one of the few wine regions in the world that has natural boundaries. It's a ring of mountains from east to west, north to south, and sits on the edge of what we call the Western Cape, overlooking the Atlantic Ocean between Cape Town and Amanus. We're about 40 miles east of Cape Town. 
if you ask the question, why is Elgin such a cool climate area, especially considering the fact that it's right next to Stellenbosch, it's not far away, literally 30 kilometers. What we need to remember is that there's a mountain range between the two of us, number one. Number two is the Elgin Valley is a little bit more south, not significantly. As I just mentioned, it's 30 kilometers away from Stellenbosch. So how much further south can it really be? But it's closer to the ocean than Stellenbosch. What really makes it unique is it's this inland mountain plateau very close to the ocean. So you have elevation. On average, the valley floor is about 300 meters above sea level. And the highest lying vineyards go up to 500 meters above sea level. What we know is as you go up, in elevation, temperature drops, especially what you also get is diannual differences. So the day-night temperature difference is much greater the higher you go above sea level, which is fantastic for the development of anthocyanins, the pre-markers that give you all the wonderful flavors in wine. So you've got combined with that the prevailing wind, which is the southeastern and the growing season, it hits these mountains and you get this amazing cloud cover. So without a doubt, we have the most cloud cover of any single area within the wine growing region in South Africa. And literally you will find days where it's 35 degrees Celsius in Stellenbosch and it's 25 degrees Celsius in the Elgin Valley. Now that is significant. That is a 20 degrees Fahrenheit difference. And from a grape point of view, it makes a huge difference. And that's why we will find that a wine farm that grows Sauvignon Blanc in Stellenbosch vis-a-vis a wine from the gross Sauvignon Blanc in the Elgin Valley, the harvesting times can be up to four weeks difference, which is significant. And that is all due to temperature. And another thing that we must realize is there's this perception that, that South Africa is exceptionally hot. And I walk around with a screenshot on my phone when I visited Burgundy in July, where for the five days going forward, Every single day, they forecasted between 35 and 37 degrees Celsius, the maximum, right? Now, I don't think, to my knowledge, there's been a week in Elgin where we've had every single day above 30 degrees Celsius. It just doesn't happen. For our hottest month is February, and our average maximum temperature for February is 27 degrees Celsius. So it's unheard of that we get these extreme warm temperatures. And going with that, actually, our mean average for February is 19 degrees Celsius. That's our average temperature, minimum, maximum, average dot. So it's really not a warm climate. If you think about the main influencer of climate, there are two things. One is your altitude. And secondly, is your biggest factor as far as cooling a vineyard down to your proximity to the sea. It's also your position relative to the prevailing winds that come off the sea. So there's no point in being next to the sea if the wind's blowing off the land to the sea, which is the case in some of the northwestern parts of the Western Cape. But if you look at a map, the most southerly point actually is not Cape Point, which a lot of people think. It's further east. It's what we call Cape Ogullis. And that's where the Atlantic Ocean and the Indian Ocean merge. The Atlantic Ocean comes from the Antarctic, and the Indian Ocean comes from effectively India, and it's much warmer. So the east coast of South Africa is quite warm. So those two currents converge at Cape Ogales. And we happen to be right at one of the most southerly points relative to the Atlantic Ocean. And the prevailing winds which blow off the Atlantic Ocean which below us is only about three kilometers away. So we're the closest vineyard to the Atlantic Ocean. So it's that wonderful effect of the prevailing winds 
blowing directly off the Atlantic Ocean, which at any point in time, even in summer, sitting at 15, 14 degrees, goes down to 12 degrees centigrade. And that is really what makes Elgin's very special. And also we have quite a unique phenomena, which is caused by the southeaster in summer, because with the wind blowing off over these mountains, you get a thin cloud formation, which also dissipates the hot sun. There's enough sunlight to create photosynthesis, but it doesn't burn the leaves. The other thing which is also important, when you talk about vine, actually above 30 degrees, a vine shuts down. So instead of transpiring, it respires. So it uses its energy to keep itself cool and not ripen the fruit. So on any typical year, if we get 10 hours in a year above 30 degrees, it's a lot, certainly at Iona. And Algonans also doesn't have these big heat spikes that you get in the rest of the country. We get sugar ripeness. In fact, what's happening is you get extraction of moisture out of the grapes, which causes sugar ripeness, but not necessarily phenolic ripeness. So I think the summary, I think in terms of climate, South Africa as a wine-growing region is very diverse. Now, it certainly doesn't mean to say that our vineyards are better than other wineries. They're different. We have this fantastic vineyard, which makes great Pinot Noir, comparable with the great wines of Burgundy and Sancerre. Whereas Stellenbosch, I'd say, has made a strong reputation for things like Cabernet and more the red wines. And if you look at the Swatland, those guys are working with the Shiraz and the Rhone varieties, which are actually quite adaptable. We've got a Shiraz in Algon. And if you think about the Rhone Valley, it's a long river running north-south. The climate up at the Koto Tea is very different from the southern one. There's so much happening in the air in Elgin that it can be easy to forget what's happening underfoot, down where the vine's roots drop the water they need. The soils and the mountains and hills themselves also contribute to Elgin's special character. The dominant soil type in the Elgin Valley is Bockerfeld Shale, so decomposed shale. And then you get great variants within that. So you get ferrocrete-based soils, which is these very iron-rich, gravelly stones. So it could vary. It could be very clay-dominated or a little bit less clay-dominated, but it is all a decomposed shale base. So very iron-rich soils. You get Table Mountain sandstone, but that's more on the periphery of the valley itself. So the more the center of the valley has got this dominant clay soils or shale soils with phenomenal minerality. So mineral content is exceptionally high. They're nutrient poor, and that's a phenomenon that you would find in general throughout the Western Cape. And the reason being is that the soils in the Western Cape are just so old. It's millions and millions of years old, so you've had degradation over time. But the minerals actually stayed within the soils. When my uncle, who, as I said, was a geomorphologist, came here and did research on the history. His speciality was identifying the history of land formations. And he established that this farm was the last remaining portion of a river valley that ran basically east-west. And we've got what we call post-glacial alluvial soils. So we have gravel beds with a deep clay underlayer. We also have this Toad Mountain sandstone, which is also quite common on the westerly side of the Elgin Valley places like Shannon have those types of soils. But the predominant one is this Porkefeld shale. It's a rich, lovely soil. Mines do really well in that. But I think the real diversity of Elgin is it's not a flat plain. If you think of Marlborough, you think of a big, flat, uniform area. 
Whereas Elgin is just the hills and valleys. Our soils are critical, but I think there's a big variety of aspects here as well. The other thing that I love about Elgin is that there's so many troughs and vales, and it's very hilly. And so where you've got your Pinot or your Riesling or your Sauvignon Blanc growing in one section, if you're just five minutes away down the road, you get another elevation that gives you another completely different character. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for those differences of pockets of sites that I can then play with and then blend together with at the end. So the more components I have, the more complex, the more exciting the wine becomes. So Elgin for me was very much that. And if you're looking for bang for buck in terms of fruit flavors and concentration and brightness and purity, which is often what you'll find in Burgundy when they showcase their pinots, this is exactly what Elgin gives you. And I find that absolutely spot on perfect for the style of wine that I create. We sit now northwesterly boundary. We on the Hottentots Holland Mountains, the Frunberg. So the prevailing winds, which are northwesterly in winter, they precipitate on the opposite side of the mountains from where they're coming, and we get significant rainfall, and that enables the dams to fill up in winter. So we are predominantly a winter rainfall area, but even during summers, it's not uncommon to get about 20 to 30 mils of rain per month, which, funny enough, is half the rainfall that you get in Burgundy or Bordeaux. They get a lot of rain in summer, and so they've got a, more of a problem because it's more vigorous, and they have to top more, they have to do a lot more manipulation of the vineyards. So it really is a, a very special climate from that point of view. I can't actually think of anything that is vaguely why I wouldn't want to be there and why I wouldn't accept the challenges of Elgin. But I would say the main thing for me would be the high rainfall and humidity, especially in a vintage like we've had this year where we've had uh, 100 mils of rain at one stage just when the bunches are ready to be picked, especially your thin skin varieties like Pinot and Riesling, and that can become very expensive, which is why our grapes also tend to be more expensive in Elgin than anywhere else because there's a lot more work that needs to be done to keep the bunches healthy, much more labor to go through to remove leaves and to make sure that your bunches are kept open so that we can get the sprays in so we don't get too much rot at the wrong time. And I would say that biodynamic is probably very difficult to manage there. So there's two farms up there that are practicing it, and I know that they struggle. It's quite a process, especially with humidity. As opposed to Swatland, where it's drier, I think you can definitely get away with it more there. About 20 years ago, I met my wife, Rosie. She lost her husband in a car accident. They'd bought a farm about two kilometers north of us and about... 150 meters lower, and on that farm we focused on the Rhone varieties. So we planted Shiraz, Mubadra, and Viognier very successfully there. We treat that as basically a separate business. Um, she was brought up on a farm, although she's a trained artist, she's a sculptor, she refers to herself as a farmer now. So her great passion is sustainable farming. She farms organically and biodynamically, and in fact doesn't use any synthetic products. And we follow that at our owner, but we've got a much more challenging climate because we're closer to the sea. So whilst we don't use any insecticides, herbicides, we make all our own compost, we do use some of the products that we need to do to manage the honey mildew and powdery mildew, whereas she doesn't use any of the factory-made products.
Given its unique setting, with abundant water, cool growing conditions, and a variety of different aspects, what sort of wines is Elgin producing? Originally, we planted almost a fruit salad of grape varietals. We planted what we thought would do well in Elgin, Sauvignon Blanc, Riesling, Gewürztraminer, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir. But we also planted Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Shiraz, Cabernet Franc, which traditionally do better in warmer climate areas. And it was over time where we started asking ourselves, what do we do really well? That we started focusing more and more on the varieties that really stood out. And for me today, if you had to ask me which are the four varietals that I really would like to pick for Elgin, it would firstly be Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, probably followed by Riesling, as Riesling also shows like Pinot Noir a great sense of place. And then after that would be Sauvignon Blanc. And if you look at the plantings within the Elgin Appellation, it's number one Sauvignon Blanc. And it probably makes sense. It's when New Zealand became famous for cool climate grapes in South Africa. That's when Elgin was founded. So Sauvignon Blanc is the dominant grape variety in the Elgin Appellation. But shortly followed by Pinot Noir and then followed by Chardonnay. So those three varieties make up more than 80% of the plantings in the Elgin Valley. When asked what's the character of Elgin Sauvignon Blanc or Elgin Chardonnay or Elgin Pinot Noir, I think firstly and foremostly is people have such a great influence of actually what they pursue as a style and stylistically. Having said that, I think the characteristics that comes across within Elgin grapes is fantastic acidity. So you get wonderful phenolic ripeness at a fairly low sugar level and wonderful acidity still within the grapes. So as a rule of thumb, I think Elgin Sauvignon Blancs, they've got this beautiful acidity. You get lovely tropical fruit to a great extent. If I had to compare it, I would say it's definitely got a foot on the new world and a foot on the old world. So you do get this minerality, the steeliness that you sometimes get from the Loire. But you also have this beautiful fresh fruit characteristics because of the wonderful sun that we have in the area. And then the same applies to Chardonnay. I think stylistically, the Elgin Chardonnays probably from all the regions within South Africa tends to be more Burgundian in style, if I could call it that. So elegance is a big driving factor. There almost seems to be consensus within the growers of the Elgin Valley that the type of grapes that you get from the valley really suits that style, which once again comes back to this purity of fruit, great acidity, beautiful elegance. So you don't want to overwood, over-extract these grapes. You almost want to show the delicate characteristics of it in making a beautiful wine. I think it's important to know that there's no difference in South Africa when it comes to Pinot Noir production as there is in France with regards to the majority of Pinot Noir produced in France ends up as champagne. The majority of Pinot Noir produced in South Africa ends up as sparkling wine. Absolutely no difference. Ironically, the majority of the Pinot Noir grown in South Africa is not in the Elgin Valley, but they do not need to get the type of phenolic ripeness and acidity and risk the exposure of the grapes being turning into raisins because they pick it at a much earlier stage. So if you want to grow Pinot Noir, to phenolic ripeness, to the point where you can actually make great red wine out of it. There are actually very specific pockets in the world that offers you that ability to do that. And I think if you look at South Africa itself, the two appellations that's really come forward to show that actually we can do it is the Hillman Arda Valley and is the Elgin Valley. And the reason being is both of those areas are fairly close to the ocean. They do not have the extreme weather conditions that will result in these grapes ending up either turning into botrytis grapes or raisins or, or dehydrated grapes. So it's an absolutely amazing. You're able to grow these grapes, produce them, get wonderful acidity, freshness in the grape. Purity of fruit is absolutely amazing. 
And then you need a winemaker that actually understands that Pinot Noir is not a Cabernet Sauvignon. You don't want to heavily extract it. It is all about elegance and balance. And then if you can do that, I think you've got a wonderful end product. The Pinot from Elgin is really quite unique. It has a tension about it. It has a nervousness and it has a spirituality about it that I don't think any other area really shows that well. And so that's why I chose Elgin. The Bookerfeld Trails is the main protagonist in terms of how I craft my Pinot into two different sections. So the Bookerfeld Trails is where most of my clay soil wines come from. And then we also have the Table Mountain Sandstone, which is a completely different textured structure of soil. It's much looser. It's much more open and granular. So the wines that I get off the Bokerfeld Trails tends to be much more dense. And in a hot season like we've had, it's very difficult because what happens is the roots then have to struggle through those clays, which become really rock hard. And they've really got to struggle. So what I'm finding when I work with the clones of clay soil or Bokerfeld Trail is that I'm getting much denser wine, especially on the texture, and I get more smoky forest floor, truffly flavor spectrum, whereas on the Table Mountain Sandstone, which is where my sandstone wines come from, much more strawberry, red fruit spectrum, on the aromatic, more on the nose and on the palate weight. So the Book of Our Shell is all about palate weight, and then the sandstones is more about aromatic. So if I had to pitch it in terms of how the wine would sit in the mouth, in terms of how burgundy looks, I would say that my sandstones would equate to something like Chambon Musigny, much more delicate, Maurice and Denis, somewhere around there. And then the Bokerfeld shell for me would be more around Pomard, somewhere there, much more heavy. Pomard is obviously much more powerful than what I produce, but I would say in that vein, we would be there. Or even Otago, it kind of resonates with me that our clay soils and Otago's wines are very similar. So that's really the difference between the two. And then there's also Sauvignon Blanc, which is perfectly suited to Elgin in particular. It's all about the acidity and it's a freshness and that line of a bright pink grapefruit, I call it. And it's all about the peacock tail of flavors that you get as well. And I don't think any other area in the Western Cape shows me that peacock tail of flavors. Besides a pink grapefruit that runs right through the wine, there's huge amounts of passion fruit. And then there's the lime citrus character. Then there's the mango and subtropical fruit spectrum that you can get. So what I do is I work with four different clones of Sauvignon Blanc. We've got the Grave and the Sancer area, so I use clones from those two areas. And then we have one from South Africa, which is called the Weather Station clone. And that is very unique. It gives you that really tight, cool, minty, nettly kind of character. And what's amazing about Sauvignon Blanc is that I really pick it over three weeks because some of the clones ripen earlier than the others. So then I actually ferment them separately And then I blend together at the end, which I think is such a wonderful way to work with the variety. I also put a little bit in oak as well, so that I have some gloss in the belly of the wine. Otherwise, it can tend to be too austere. And I also tend to pick it a little bit riper than a lot of other producers because I'm finding that the more that I can hang the Sauvignon Blanc, 
the more flavors and the more of those bright subtropical flavors I'm going to get. And then it tends more towards a black currant as well, which I think is pretty spectacular. And then I'll use the weather station, which I pick three weeks later than the others, as the line of freshness that keeps the wine all together. So it's a fun variety to play with. And it's a huge favorite, and it's pretty sought after around the world, including in the U.S. It's a great summertime wine. And then other varieties like Riesling, which is known as an Eskimo variety, grown mainly in Germany. So there it's extremely cold. And Elwyn is, again, one of the cold spots of a very warm climate in South Africa that best suits this variety. My approach to Riesling is... It was a journey that I I wasn't ready to take on back in the day, but it was my importer from the U.S., James Clark from Blue Crane, who said, look, we were interested. Let's do an R&D program on it and let's see what we've got. And I said, really, that's not really the style of wine that I drink much of and I I don't really know much about it and I'm, I'm not really that interested to make it, but all right, let's try. Let's bring in three tons and let's make a small tank and let's see how we go. Well, it was an absolute revelation. After I did some research on it and tasted through a lot of reasonings where I could, it was the Mosel and the Vaults area that I found particularly fascinating because it resonated with a style that we could produce here in South Africa. So I didn't want to create a German wine. I wanted to create a style that was reminiscent of what they do based on the same kind of soils that we have in South Africa, which are the red slates. And in the Mosel and Vaults area, we have a lot of that there as well, where they make their Rieslings. And they're also pretty and demure, and I wanted to make that sort of style as well. And I definitely didn't want to make a sweet Riesling, and I didn't want to make a very bone-dry Riesling either. It had to be about balance. It had to take that acid, and it had to hold that acid beautifully when it sits in your mouth. So it's not too austere or too harsh or too sharp in terms of acidity. Every year it is a challenge for me because it is once again one of those very, very difficult grapes to work with. But it keeps me honest because you're dealing with a variety that demands a lot of attention. So I think that's why the Germans like it so much. They like the challenge to make it work right. Probably the two most exciting varietals that I think we grow is Riesling and Pinot Noir. And if I look at both of those varieties, show a sense of place in an amazing way. So looking at Riesling, First, South Africa is tiny when it comes to Riesling production. There are very few growers. We are less than 30 in total. And partly because South Africa has such a checkered history with Riesling, originally the first plant material that was imported and called Riesling wasn't Riesling. It was actually Crucian Blanc. And it created a lot of confusion. But later on, we now finally can call Riesling the real thing. And what's amazing is that this variety has also found a home in cooler climates. So there are pockets in Stellenbosch with microclimates where Riesling does exceptionally well. Jordan Winery comes to mind. Hartenberg Winery comes to mind. And and then they focus really on the coolest sites within their properties. And then the Algen Valley. So Oak Valley, Paul Kluver, Spienkorp, we all produce Rieslings. And the amazing thing is, and what we all know about what Riesling really wants, is that acidity that balances the residual sugar of the wine. I think a, a bone-dry Riesling becomes almost hard to drink unless it's got some bottle age on it. But if you can have a Riesling which does have a little bit of that residual sugar and you've got that acidity that just cuts through it and gives you this beautiful, balanced, fresh, crisp feeling on the palate, which is absolutely amazing, then I think you can do a phenomenal job. 
One grape that's less common in Elgin is South Africa's flag-bearer variety, Chenin Blanc. Chenin grew to prominence in South Africa in the 1960s, when Elgin and other coastal regions didn't have quotas for vineyards, so Elgin was left out. In addition, while much of the world looks to the Loire and sees Chenin Blanc as a cool climate grape, in South Africa it's often planted in warmer areas, where it thrives, but makes wines in a much different style. Nonetheless, there are a handful of producers in Elgin who have embraced the grape. I also do some Chenin Blanc, which is generally a warm climate variety, but wanted to make something that was more chiseled, that was fresh and bright and clean, and so decided to choose some blocks from Elgin that have small patches of it growing there. There's so many beautiful Chenins in that rich flamboyant style that the Swatland area brings, which I think are fantastic. And, and they, certainly with all the old vines that were planted back there back in the day, it was an obvious choice to go and work with those varieties that were already planted. So I'm a bit of a strange one in that I like to swim in ponds where nobody else is swimming. So, for instance, in Elgin, all of a sudden, Chardonnay just took off. It was seen as one of the go-to areas in the Western Cape to get world-class, premium-styled Chardonnay. Now, again, I decided I wasn't going to go and work with Chardonnay. I'd rather swim in the other pond, the smaller pond of Shannon in Elgin, and create it like a Chardonnay. And it's incredible how the framework of Chardonnay, because I love to drink Chardonnay, it was foremost in my mind when I started creating this wine, the Chenin. And because I love, again, the bright, fresh character that cool climate brings to wine, I wanted to then make something that was completely different and less showy than the wines from the warmer climates. So you're getting that more chiseled, ozone-y, almost like a wave break going over your face when you dive through a beautiful wave. But then you also have this glossiness of kind of peach juice nectar that kind of flows over all of that. So you've got the combination of that sort of chiseled, ozone-y ocean. You've got the wet pebbles and you've got that peach juice character all in an envelope. And so that's what the cool climate has brought to the wines that I make from Shannon. And then the other layer of that is to ferment in these beautiful stone amphora that I have made here in South Africa by a very dear friend of mine. And he is making them and crafting them for quite a few people in South Africa now. But I think for me, Shannon in his stone cast old world amphora just works so beautifully. And I've done extremely well with this wine, particularly in areas like Japan where all the Top Michelin star restaurants really go mad for this wine because it pairs very well with their kind of food. And it has become quite sought after here in South Africa too. So I feel I'm on the right track in terms of looking at Shannon from another perspective and using the chiseled aspect of Elgin Shannon that's grown in cool climate and then using a little bit of warm fruit as well from Stellenbosch to flesh that all out. So it's been a really amazing journey with this wine. Yeah. I do have a very small section of oak fermented Shannon that I blend back. And for me, it was more about how do I stylistically create this wine? So I wanted something that was rich in the mid-core, but still bright and fresh on the sort of outer parts of it. So it was using the construct of Chardonnay to create a Shannon. Because Shannon can become too soupy and too rich and flamboyant and too much. So I wanted to hone it in. I wanted to bring it in and control it. 
have the bit in the mouth and rein it in so that you've got this really bright, upright wine that's got a bit of belly as well. So it was using that Chardonnay construct to create the Chenin that I'm producing now. As Paul Kluver mentioned, early plantings in Elgin included some of the Baro... As Paul Kluver mentioned, early plantings in Elgin included some of the Bordeaux varieties as well. While Kluver no longer grows them, in other parts of the valley they are thriving. Shannon Vineyards Merlot, for example, has become quite sought after, as has Kathy's. I was very fortunate to work at Chateau Angelus in Bordeaux, in Saint-Emilion, which is one of the premier Grand Cru's, and I learned an enormous amount about how to work with Merlot and Cab Franc the right way. And, of course, they had incredible sellers. They have history, and they know exactly what they're doing. But I also happened to work with a very modern-thinking winemaker, Hubert de Beauard and Michel Roland. And it was just very fortunate that I happened to be there at that time because I quite liked the idea of Merlot because it's also, for me, a bit of a feminine grape. It's a feminine Bordeaux grape as opposed to being feminine Burgundy. And I came back to South Africa and saw what we were doing in South Africa and wasn't very impressed. Now, that was going back into the 1990s, where in a bottle we'd have very green and we'd have very porty-styled wines blended together. So it was just a mess. And so I lost interest in Merlot in South Africa and Cab Franc after what I'd been tasting for four months in France. So I left it for many years until I got to Elgin, and I started looking at vineyards there and realized that there was some potential. And then I happened to speak to Rosa Kruger, who's one of our best viticultural consultants around. And I said to her, will you just come and have a look at this? I want to see what potential we have here. And then she looked at all of this and she said, Kath, whatever you've learned about Merlot, throw it out the window and we're going to start again. Especially in Elgin, because Merlot is an incredibly prolific grower. And the bunch, if you think about Pinot, it's the size of your fist. But if you had to look at a Merlot, it would be halfway through your inner arm to the tips of your fingers. It's a very long bunch. So when you look at the vineyard, it's just bunch zone. And often the canopies are much smaller. So oftentimes you couldn't get it ripe unless you chopped off 50% of your crop, which is what Rosa advised me to do. And make sure that you've got enough canopy to ripen all of those bunches so that you've got perfectly ripened and, should I say, vine-ripened bunches so that everything is perfectly in balance, so that you don't have the green on the back where the sun can't get to and then those porty grabs on the outside where the sun is only hitting. So everything is almost like lanterns, like individual lanterns hanging on the arms of the vine so that the sun can ripen everything perfectly. Uh, it's not so nice for the producers to see 50% of their fruit lying on the ground because that's obviously economy. But I've managed to convince people that if you do it properly, you can actually charge good money for your bottles of wine. And so that's the thinking. And, of course, where you've got Elgin being cool climate, which means you don't have spikes of sugar as well, and then your phenolic ripeness tends to stay low. So where we're able to extend the hang time, we're able to – ripen the berries much slower over time and also get phenolic ripeness, which means your tannins are riper, less green, and everything is just purple fruit rather than those string bean, weedy, nettly characters, which I can't stand. So there's a lot of work in Merlot. I would say equally amount of work to go into 
viticultural husbandry as you would with Pinot. So a lot of work to go. And then, of course, the sorting tables have to have the sorting tables to take out any green berries or anything that's not ripe because Merlot can have that a very green character. So it stood me in good stead to learn from the best of the best in France, and this is what it takes to make great Merlot. Working with Merlot in South Africa, because we, we worked with Clo 9 and 12, which I think there's some others, but those are the main ones, and especially in the hot climates, like in the Paul area where I was doing some consulting work, I just didn't like it. It was just too bulky and it just lacked fruit. It was just too much smoky, minerally, but without lovely crunchy fruit that I'm looking for as well. And Elgin, for me, I was quite blown away that 9 and 12 could do better in cooler climates because it has time to evolve because it usually ripens about a week after the French clone, the 343 and 348, which are pretty in their demure and they have all of that silky fruit that I'm looking for. So it's quite amazing if you think about an Italian who's quite blocky and loud and full of itself and very demonstrative. If you had to walk through a vineyard and test the Italian clone like that, you'd see what I mean. It's Tannins are very structured and very square and very blocky in your mouth. And then you move into the vineyard next door, which is your French clones, which are just so pretty and fluid and beautiful in your mouth. And I generally would keep the two clones separate. And then when you actually marry them together at the end, unbelievable how French and Italian can actually come together and form a great partnership. It's really extraordinary. I love the French clones. I think they really suit South Africa better than the Italian. But that's just my opinion. Someone else might disagree with what I say. We started with Sauvignon Blanc because it's probably the most widely drunk white wine in South Africa. And the beauty of Sauvignon is that it's obviously, in business terms, you need to make a profit. And cash flow in the wine industry is critical because the, the investment is significant and it takes a long time to get a return. So we decided to focus on Sauvignon initially because you harvest and start selling Sauvignon in the same year. So that was the first planting. So our owner, as a property, is about 60% Sauvignon Blanc, 20% Chardonnay, and 20% Pinot Noir. So that's what our philosophy is. And within those ranges, we've also got a second label. If you're making premium wine, there's always going to be some wines which either don't fit or the volumes, you have a good harvest, you don't want to release too much wine. So in 2009, we started a second label, Sauvignon Blanc, called Sophie de Blanche, which is a nickname for Sauvignon Blanc in South Africa. And that's been very successful, to the extent that I had bought another farm in Elgin where we sourced grapes from for that. But we also buy in significant volumes of grapes from other Cape South Coast producers, which includes Elgin, Walker Bay. And then, of course, with my wife's property, then we have, of course, the Pinot Noir. And in the Pinot Noir range, we also have a second label Pinot, which is called Mr. P. Lovely wine. We call it Mr. P because it, you know, Mr. P knows Pinot. And it's very difficult to find a decent bottle of Pinot at an affordable price. But, you know, like the Burgundy experience, if you look at great Burgundies, the Grand Cru vineyards, they won't use the grapes for the Grand Cru wines until the vineyards are 20 years old. And Premier Cru generally 10 years old. So the Mr. P is basically an outlet for our younger fruit. And then within our range, we've got two single vineyard Chardonnays and two single vineyard Pinots, but those are very small volumes. 
more for the wine geeks who want to experience what makes up the components of the blend, or what we call our Owen Hyman's range, which is the blend of all the vineyards. The other thing we recently introduced was the concept of monopole on our labels, because we much like some of the Burgundy producers. We have a monopoly on, on our fruit. We don't buy any fruit, and we don't sell any of our fruit. So I think it's a very important component of sustainable quality. You don't want to be running around every year looking for fruit. And we know how to manage our vineyards, and we take full responsibility from planting the vineyard through to the wine in the bottle. Apples remain the biggest crop in Elgin and have made the land in Elgin some of the most profitable farmland in the Southern Hemisphere. That means wineries need to be serious about their work, whether they're farming their own land or buying grapes from growers. It calls for commitment on many levels, to the land, to the workers, to colleagues, and to the final product. It was in 97, just after the advent of what we call the New South Africa, when we had the first democratic election. And one of the things I embraced was Nelson Mandela's vision of this rainbow nation and have a role to play. And I must say, as a farmer, I think it's probably the most committed you can be to a country is investing in farmland because it's a long-term commitment. You go into any other business, you can shut it down or you buy trading stocks and shares, you're in and out. There's no real commitment. But as a farmer, um, making a real commitment. And quite frankly, I've got 20 families living on the farm. They're an integral part of our success. So we've got about 100 dependents living on the farm. My workers are shareholders in the business. I was interested to see that the minimum wages were recently increased for farm workers. And our minimum wage is already 16% above the the new minimum wage. And average wage for our farmers is 62% above the minimum wage. And that excludes pension funds, bonuses, education of children. So I see my workers and the people that are part of my business as a very important part of our success. When I bought this farm and I started planting vineyards, I got really excited and called a meeting of farmers. And I think this was about 99, I think, and shared my experiences with them. And I had a, a meeting attended by about 50 farmers in my house, and I had Professor Archer come, I had Neil Ellis, Michael Fridjohn, and a whole bunch of people, and we spoke. And that, I think, was the start of the major planting in, in the Elgin Valley. And at one stage, there were a 1,000 hectares of vineyards, because the apple industry was in a really bad state at that time. And the farmers were looking for an alternative to apples. But, of course, what happened since then is that apples have made a huge comeback, and the vineyard industry is challenging. So unless you own your own strong brand and have your own cellar, you don't have a really good chance of making a profit in the wine industry compared to apples. I'm biased, but I think this is a fantastic wine region. I think it's one of the great wine-growing regions in the world. But its biggest competitor, funny enough, is not other wine regions, but the apples that are planted in Elgin. Because Elgin is well known for apples, and apples, in fact, are more profitable than wine. But what I love about the wine industry is that you're not in the commodity business. Apples are a commodity. There's not much fun in planting apples, in my opinion. I would love to own my own vineyards, but I'm also very fortunate that I have fabulous growers that I've been working with for many years. And they've gotten to know how I like to do things. And I work pretty closely with them as well. And also some of them I make wines for as well. So there's nice symmetry that goes on there. And I'm very, very fortunate that 
the way that they produce their grapes is just spectacular. So I'm, I'm very blessed that way. So I literally have my rows that are afforded to me, and every year I usually go into the same blocks, the same rows, so that I get consistency. It's all about selecting the right vineyards, selecting the right partners to work with, selecting the right variety to marry with all of that is important. And obviously there has to be a a sense of fun in what you do because it's an extremely difficult, very expensive operation. takes an enormous amount of effort to make a good bottle of wine. And there is a lot of good wine out there. So for me, it's about that symbiosis really with grower and site. And I could not have done it without those two things. And I'm extremely fortunate that I have had that. So that's really all I needed to say. And just enjoy the wines, really, <laughs> and have, have fun experimenting with them. If you look at why Elgin, without a doubt, pursues the premium category of wine production, is firstly, we get naturally low yield. And these natural low, low yields is not conducive to try and make cheap wines or volume-based wines. So if you've got a lower yield, it only makes financial sense if the quality can justify that low hill. So you have to make sure that you get phenomenal quality, that you can put it in a bottle of wine, that you can sell at a premium. And I think that holds true for any variety that you grow in the Elgin Valley. It's not a high-yielding area. I think the average yield in Elgin is about seven tons to the hectare. If you compare that to something like Robertson, which is between 20 and 30 tons to the hectare, there's just no ways we can compare the two areas. I think if you ask me about exciting wine growing regions, especially stylistically, this movement towards no longer having high alcohol wines, Elgin ticks the boxes for that. It is for me like Leda and Chile. It's that exciting growing region, which is fairly young. Stellenbosch is South Africa's Napa Valley. It's the big, well-established wine growing region where the Elgin Valley, if you consider, is essentially from a winemaking point of view, 25 years old and what it's been able to achieve in that 25 years has been absolutely incredible producing wines of world-class quality and actually getting the recognition all over the world both in america uh, the uk from world-class journalists so it's an exciting area and it's definitely an area to watch in the next couple of years We'd like to get a North American perspective on our subject each week. And this week, I've turned to Master Sommelier John Zabo to see what he thinks of Elgin Wines. John actually wears a number of different hats in the industry. Uh, John, what have you been up to these days? Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, Yeah, a few different things in the wine business. My main job, my day job is writing for a publication called Wine Align, winealign.com, but uh, also for a few other magazines, including one down in the U.S. called uh, Monarch, which is just launching up, but they've got some really interesting tech music, not technical music, but technology plus music plus wine happening. also do some work with a company called Cell Art. They design pretty beautiful sellers. And most recently, like you, launched uh, a podcast with my colleague from Wineline called Wine Thieves, which most relevantly for this discussion, we'll be doing a Drink Shenan Day episode coming up in June, where we're going to celebrate all things Shenan from South Africa. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. I'll look forward to checking that out. You've been down to South Africa, and have you had a chance to visit Elgin? Yeah, in fact, on my most recent trip down there, which was 2017, if I remember correctly, 
spent a day in the valley with a number of producers who we all met and tasted through quite a range of wines. And that was, in fact, my first time physically in the region, although I've been tasting the wines for probably about a decade or so when we first saw wines like Paul Kluver is the first name that comes to mind. That was the first wine in our market here. And I know he was one of the pioneers down there. Absolutely. And there's been so much of the hype on Elgin, of course, is that it's the coolest climate major wine growing area in South Africa. Do the wines live up to that cool climate character? Yeah, I think without any question, if we were to compare side by side, the wines from Stellenbosch and Svartland and, and Parle, even Durbanville Hills, I think these wines would register on the cooler end of the spectrum. And, and by that cool period, not just cool for South Africa, there's a real tension, there's a real energy, mm-hmm. there's certainly lots of acidity. But I'll say also that there's a generosity of fruit. You can taste that it's a sunny place, but it's a cool place. And for me, that makes it a pretty unique part of the world. It's not too many places where you find that tension and, and genuine acidity, natural acidity, coupled with the ripeness of fruit that you get from sunshine. It makes it pretty special. Mm-hmm. And within that, do you find there are certain varieties that seem to shine best in Elgin or have a most individual character there? Yes, listen, I think we'd have to put uh, Chardonnay at, at the top of that list, certainly from what I've tasted from the very early stage with uh, Kluver's Chardonnay, although I was quite excited by Syrah, I'll be perfectly honest. I, mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting that, and, and maybe your listeners wouldn't have expected Syrah from such a cool area, but we know the variety can span quite a range of climates. It just shows itself a little differently, and I personally love that cool climate, very floral, vibrant, uh, slightly peppery style that you get in Elgin and other places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Syrah is a very interesting grape in South Africa because I think we associate it with some of the warm regions, such as uh, Swartland or even parts of Stellenbosch. But you also have it in Elgin. You have it down in Elam, doing another cool climate, a very peppery sort of style. Mm-hmm. For sure. And, and obviously, we should mention Pinot Noir. That goes hand in hand wherever you find Chardonnay. And most recently, having tasted a beautiful Chenin from down there, I have to say, I know there's not a lot of that planted, but I would love to see more of it. It's a very different style from Stellenbosch and Svartland and one that I have a lot of time for, I'll say that. Great. Yeah, I want to get back to that because, as you say, it's not a common grape in the Elgin area, though obviously it's the most planted variety in South Africa. And that goes to the history, the heyday of Chenin Blanc being the 1960s. This was an area that really wasn't planted with grapes at that time. So we sent you a Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. In this case, they're both from Sutherland, which is a brand created by Thalema, which is a Stellenbosch producer specifically to make Elgin wines. How are these wines showing today? I confess I tasted the uh, Pinot. I've got the Chardonnay and the Pinot here. I tasted that a couple of months ago. It came through into our market here. And I'm going to sound like a broken record because I say this so frequently about (laughs) South African wines, but man, terrific value. Mm-hmm. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on a Wines of South Africa podcast, but you can look back in my writings and for so many years now, it just seems that I tend to pick out again and again wines from South Africa, from across the country that really over-deliver for the price. And to get Pinot Noir in this case for under $20 in our market that smells and tastes like Pinot Noir in that beautiful cool climate style that we love to drink is a rarity it's a very rare bird so whenever i come across them i'm quite excited but the chardonnay i thought was showing really quite well i know producers don't like it when we compare to other regions that's what we do on the wine side (laughs) we try to put the world of wine into context and i guess the closest analogies i could come up with would be other cool coastal but 
sunny area. Sonoma Coast came to mind, mm-hmm. and I'm talking far out Sonoma Coast or Green Valley, some of the cooler parts of that area, or even coastal Chile, some of the new wines coming out of Leda Valley, for example. Even cooler style, I find these wines from Elgin than even Casablanca. Casablanca is actually quite warm at mm. the end of the day, other than right out by the far coast. But again, these wines have that generosity of fruit without slipping into overripeness and maintaining what you can taste, what you can tell is real genuine acidity underneath. And I love that shift of fruit that stays within the citrus and moves into the white orchard without ever going over into tropical. So that's a style that I gravitate towards. Mm-hmm. Great. Now, you mentioned the other variety that we sent to you was a Chenin Blanc, which is typically South African, typically a warm climate grape in South Africa, though sommeliers, I think with their French-centric training, usually think of it as a cool climate, Loire Valley. This wine came across well, you said. Yeah, I thought it was absolutely spectacular, I'll be honest. Again, I'm going to go on and on about acidity, but a completely different style from, say, the Chenin up in Svartland, which I'm a huge fan of as well, but I would put that in a different category altogether. And that's the beauty of Shannon Law is that it can really work across a broader range of climates than most people would give it credit for. Yes, it's mostly associated with cool climates, although South Africa has changed the paradigm on that. And Elgin is another dimension to South African Shannon that I'm quite excited about. I'd love to see more planted there. I know there's only a couple of producers thereabouts, but for me, it's a variety that clearly performs pretty well there. Again, we're into the yellow fruit spectrum here, so fully ripe grapes. There's nothing green or lean or mean about this, but a much higher acidity, lower pH than I would expect from, say, Stellenbosch or Svartland. I haven't visited this estate in Spankop, but from what I've read, what I understand, what I taste, it seems a pretty hands-off, non-intervention style, but very clean, squeaky clean, no deviations, no oxidation, you know, good natural wine, we'll call it. Yeah, that's, I think, another thing it has in common with some of the Swartland people you mentioned who also tend to pursue a low intervention sort of approach. Now, if you tasted this blind, would you still recognize it as being South African or might you start wondering about other parts of the world? Yeah, that would be a fun <laughs> experiment to do. Now, listen, we're fooled all the time. And I guess my answer no. is no, probably South Africa wouldn't be the first place I would think of because hmm. my experience with Shannon from South Africa is, as I mentioned, mostly Stellenbosch and, and Svartland, where the style is different. Yeah, this would fool me. I'm uh, almost sure of it. Great. Elgin's a small area, but we're hearing more and more about it, and it sounds like you're seeing more of these wines coming through into Canada as well. Do you think this is an area that people are going to need to keep on their map if you're stocking an interesting restaurant wine list or an interesting wine shop shelves? If you look at the way the wine market seems to be heading, certainly within the industry, within the trade, the wine bar scene, that level, we're not talking a supermarket level here, then absolutely, because we know people are looking for lighter, fresher, leaner, tighter, more vibrancy, and Elgin can certainly deliver that. Probably be a while before Elgin is a mainstream name. I'm sure some people wonder whether it's pronounced Elgin or Elgin. (laughs) (laughs) I still hear both from South Africans. I have committed to myself to Elgin just so I can be consistent. I'm going to drink wine from Elgin and I'll drink gin and tonic and leave it at that. I hope you enjoyed our look at the wines of Elgin. You can find more resources and links to the producers we talked to at our website, wosa.us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends 
or better yet, go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover it and discover South African wines. We're going to continue talking about some cool climate areas next time when we look at a grape that thrives in them, Sauvignon Blanc. It's the third most planted white grape in South Africa and the number one seller on the South African domestic market. As we'll see, Elgin doesn't have a monopoly on great Sauvignon. 